What an appropriate song when you are teaching on the new birth. That is God's breath that's in our lungs, that gives us the capacity to praise Him, the one who is due all our praise. This morning, as we continue in this study on the new birth, as we saw last week, God says you must have be born again to see the kingdom of God. And we pick up in verse 9, hear the word of the Lord, Nicodemus' answer, or question that is, how can these things be? Asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things, Jesus replied? Truly I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify what we have, what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who has ascended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his, own, his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may, be, may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you don't already have your copy of God's Word open to that text, let me encourage you to find your way there. If for some reason you need a copy of the Bible, we have some there on the back table there, and uh, we'd love for you to be able to follow along with us this morning. John chapter 3, verse 9 through 21 is going to be our text to study. Um, so you ready for a somewhat seasonally untimely illustration? Yeah? One of my favorite Christmas movies <laughs> is The Elf. All right. Um, I like this movie. It's funny. It's, got, it's very lighthearted and so on and so forth. But if you've seen the movie, if you haven't, where have you been? Uh, but at the heart of the movie is this desire to believe. That's really kind of the central theme of the movie, right? There, there's this problem of belief. There's, you see this in Buddy is this elf, uh, sort of, who finds out he's not an elf. He's got to go find his birth dad. Finds his birth dad. His birth dad doesn't believe that he's an elf. He doesn't believe that he is his son. And then even his romantic interest, but his romantic interest in the movie struggles to believe and find any real meaning in herself or in her life. Christmas spirit is an all-time low in New York City. And then it all kind of climaxes at this moment when Santa Claus comes to town and then his sleigh gives out in Central Park, right? And if I'm giving you details on this, you've had plenty of time, by the way, to watch the movie, Okay. Um, and so the sleigh gives out because obviously the sleigh is powered by Christmas spirit, by belief, if you will. And it ends up being Buddy, his half-brother, and ultimately his dad, who rescues Christmas by raising the Christmas cheer in the area. And their belief makes Santa Claus powerful, makes the sleigh powerful. We all know the story well, if you're familiar with this. And frankly, this is the undercurrent of all of our Christmas narratives today. Um, and so if you start to evaluate the core of that message in our world today, belief 
And trust seems to be an all-time low, does it not? We have a hard time believing things. We, we struggle to trust things. And so movies like this show us that belief has been reduced to this kind of inner power to try to wield the divine, to wield purpose, to wield uh, meaning in our lives. And that's what we've reduced belief into. But as we return today to this discussion, as we opened up last week, on new birth and why we need new birth, in John chapter 3, starting in verse 9, we find that the Bible portrays belief, the call to believe, very differently than the world in which we live in, that tends to believe in the, 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 the call to believe in us is a power that we then usher on to God, like we place on to God. If our, our belief makes God real, that's not what the Bible says. Actually, the Bible says quite the opposite, that it's not Nicodemus, as we were going to talk about this morning, who, who, who authenticates God authenticates Jesus, but it's actually Jesus, his authority, and ultimately his new birth that authenticates Nicodemus's belief. We need God to help us believe, to help us believe. As we said in the song last week, help me to believe in that song, Jesus is better. So important for us because we can't believe without God's help. And that's really the whole crux of this this situation is you need new birth. Well, you can't even believe in new birth unless you have new birth to believe. And it's this kind of tension that we see in the text. We frankly, we see it throughout the Bible. And so for an exceptional man like Nicodemus, who is this great Pharisee and committed to his religious upbringing and training and, uh, for him to be so committed to it, down to the micro-fraction, like most Pharisees were, to his religious activity, his, his heritage, his the, and his theology and whatnot, to be able to, to, to hear Jesus' words had to be earth-shattering for him. In verse 9, his question tells us how he's responding to these things that Jesus has talked about, about the new birth. And he simply asks the question, how can these things be? Now, what's the nature of the question? Well, the nature of the question isn't Nicodemus questioning Jesus' authority any longer. That time has passed. He came on the scene and he said, Jesus, we know who you really are. As if Jesus didn't know who he really was. As if he needed Nicodemus and the rulers to be able to authenticate Jesus. No, he's now coming to Jesus going, then I don't know anything. How can these things, how can this new birth be real for, for me, for, for those around us? How do we see this new birth come, come a reality in our life? It's, it's not a question of one seeking to question Jesus' authority, but one pleading to know how new birth might be applied to him, to be applied to us. It's a heartfelt question, a deeply contrite question. Only The only appropriate question, frankly, that you can ask in the face of your Redeemer. God, how can this be? How would such wonderful things be applied to me? How can I be sure that I have experienced new birth? And that's the goal this morning is to ask, answer that question. How does Jesus respond to Nicodemus? Because this is the last time we hear from Nicodemus, at least in this passage. Well, that's a sum of what we're going to talk about this morning. How can these things be for us? And here's the sum of it all. New birth is connected, deeply connected, to believing in the crucified and risen Christ. 
who displays the incomprehensible love of God. New birth is deeply connected to your belief, my belief, in the crucified and risen Son, Jesus, the crucified and risen Christ, who displays the incomprehensible nature of God's love for the world. Amen. Got a lot to unplow through this morning. So let's hang on, let's get into it. So what we see is that as Jesus answers this question, he's going to show Nicodemus. He's going to show us the relationship between our new birth and that object of our belief, Jesus. New birth in Jesus cannot be separated. New birth and belief cannot be separated. They are intricately connected. They, they are wed together, and it creates the most wonderful of devotional ideas and thoughts and reflections if we will allow it to do so. And so what you'll see in Jesus' answer this morning, if you look at verses 10 through 21, you can really kind of pare it down to two things. Jesus will respond by saying, okay, new birth, you've got to believe in the crucified and risen Son. And then two, we'll see new birth, you've got to believe in the marvelous love of God. Now, there's something common about those two points. It's that word belief. And we can't really venture into the text. We can't really venture into those two truths this morning unless we really understand this word believe, at least in the way that John uses it. Because it's the anchoring verb in the text. It's used six times in just these 12 verses that we're going to study this morning. The Greek word is pistio. Forgive me if I'm butchering the pronunciation of that. But it's the central theme, not of only this passage, but frankly, it's the central theme of the entire Gospel of John. The whole title, look on the front of your bulletin, that you may believe, is from chapter 20, verse 30. It is the very goal that John has at the center of his Gospel, is that you and I would believe, and by believing, what? You may have life. New birth. That you may be born again. To believe, then, as John has it, and as the Greek word is, means, is to believe something to be true and therefore worthy of our, worthy to be trusted. So it's not just to believe something's true, but notice the second part, to trust on it. What does it mean to trust? It means to, to lean, right? Like, it, it, this, yeah, not really good shape, is it? But to lean on something knows that it's going to hold you up. So truth is something that we believe in so that we know that it will hold us up. It's the same word we use in the New Testament for faith. Faith is to trust in the truth that has been revealed to us, to lean on that truth. It's not enough for you to have a lot of Bible ideas in your head. It's not enough for you to read a lot of good books about the Bible. It is that those truths that you learn so much about actually push us to lean on Jesus, to believe in him, as we'll see later, to look to him, to cast your gaze upon him. The best illustration I have for this kind of faith is this, there's a new popularity out there, of, especially in very affluent areas where they, people would have these uh, mountainside homes, especially in California, and they have these decks that are like pure glass under them. Have you seen these things? Um, there's actually a bridge somewhere, I'm not sure exactly where, where there's a bridge that you walk across, and it's this deep cavern, it's in another foreign country, and you walk across it, they actually have a point in there where it, it fake shatters so that it really freaks you out, 
kind of thing, and it's like thousands and thousands of feet below you, and all you see is looking down, there's this kind of walking bridge or these walking decks that are just pure glass. In other words, it's real, right? We know it's real. You can see the structure in some sense. You know your feet are on it, but sometimes you don't always see it. That's what faith is in the scriptures. It's not blind faith. It is God has revealed things, but maybe some of these things we don't see, and we lean on it, we trust in it, knowing that we're not going to fall to our death. This is the idea that we have in, in Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of fame of faith, right? Let's just pick out a couple points here. Look at verse 3, if you're following along with me. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so we do this by faith, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. That's faith. Uh, Go to Abraham and, or even, yeah, let's go down to Abraham in uh, in verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive an inheritance, he went out, and even though he did not know where he was going, by faith he did these things. Moses. We talk about Moses later on. By faith, let me find it here real quick. Verse 23, after he was born, Moses, after he was born, was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful and they did not fear the king's edict. By faith, they believed that God was true even in face of the tyranny of the king, of the Pharaoh. By faith, Moses, verse 24, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of the world. By faith, these things are true. By faith are the things that release us and unhinge the hold that the world has upon our hearts and all the fleeting cares we have there. That's belief. That's what God would have us. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It's by faith, not by sight. Now, that is what John would have us understand as he beds this word into this. Belief is deeply connected to new birth. You cannot have one without the other. It just doesn't work. It's, is there some eternal mystery within the, the relationship there? And John feels no need to try to expound on that. He says you just got to deal with it. You can't believe without new birth, and you don't have new birth without belief. And there's just this wonderful tension that exists in this relationship. Now... Now we have that as our ground. Let's talk about what, how Jesus responds to Nicodemus. He picks up in verse 10. Nicodemus is asked the question, how can these things be? Let's just pick up a couple of verses here. Verse 10, for he was looking, f- I'm sorry, I'm actually looking in the wrong <laughs> passage here. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Truly, I tell you, we speak from what we know and testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. The first thing we see Jesus do here in this moment in answering his question of this before he can even get him to believe in the crucified and risen son is that how do you not know these things? In other words... You and all you guys have got it all down, all your crew, your posse. You think you know who I am, but you don't know these things that are being revealed and unfolded right in front of your eyes. How do you know these things? How could you possibly know these things? 
I thought you, Jesus is kind of, if you want to kind of read behind it, I thought you came with confidence of what you knew, Nicodemus. I thought you knew who I really was. Remember, you told me I was a good teacher, yet the things that I am teaching you do not know. Therefore, you don't really know what you think you know. And then he says, we speak what we know and have seen. In other words, Jesus is kind of playing off Nicodemus's words from, chapter, from verse 2, where he says, we know that you're a good teacher. He's kind of speaking on behalf of the religious rulers of his day. And Jesus says, let me talk to you about another we. There's different debates on exactly what Jesus means by we here, but I think the most likely possibility is that we, he's saying we, meaning what has been revealed to you, who has believed in God's unfolding promises. We would be the Noah, we would be Abraham, we would be the hall of faith that we've just talked about in Hebrews 11. We would be all the prophets. What have they revealed? We know, he says, what we know, and we speak to what we know, and we speak to what we have seen. Jesus is lumping himself in with this great hall of faith that has preceded him. He's lumping himself with the covenant promises that God has been unfolding so beautifully and so wonderfully and so mercifully to his people for these many, many centuries. And he's basically telling Nicodemus, you and I are not listening to the same voices, are we? What have they said? I'm saying what they're saying, and you're not even coming close to what they're saying. So what exactly are you saying, and who are you saying it with? I don't care what you guys in Jerusalem think. Are they saying what has been revealed to you over these many centuries? And they clearly have missed it. But it's not just that they need to believe, that Nicodemus needs to believe in what's been plainly revealed here, because that's obvious. But he also needs to believe in in what those witnesses pointed to, because this is where Jesus goes next. In verse um, 13, I'm sorry, verse 12. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man, And verse 14 is the linchpin. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so that the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. What is Jesus saying in these few verses? Well, he's saying you can't comprehend eternal truth when you can't even see earthly truth, worldly truth. And so he uses this picture of Moses lifting up the serpent in in the wilderness to show them that you had a hard time believing that God was in the middle of that. Here's a story, if if you're not familiar with it. It's Numbers 21. Verses 4 through 9, God had, they had been wandering through the wilderness and they were in a particularly desperate place, a very, un, um, a, a, a very I don't know, healthy place in, the, in, the, in, in terms of the, the geography around it. It was very, very dark and hard, hard terrain that they were in. Serpents and everything were around. And they began to complain. Israel began to complain to God during their, their wilderness wanderings and saying, God, we would have been better off in, in Egypt. How many times have they done this thus far? So many times. And if we're all tr- honest with ourselves, we do the same thing, right? You know, maybe it's just, this is just a little, asking a little bit too much of us, Jesus. I may be better off just, you know, making all the money I can, getting all the pleasure I can. That's exactly what they're saying to God. And God, in his love and mercy, yet judgment comes in, and, and he allows them to experience even more suffering in the midst of their complaints. And so serpents come up and they begin to, 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 to strike the people and some people were, were dying. And they're crying out all the more to God. And God says, okay, Moses, show them my power. 
pick up this, make a gold, make a bronze serpent on, this, on, this, on the pole, hold it up in the middle of Israel as a reminder that I will always heal you no matter what you face. Amen. Of course, it's where we get the sign for the medical community we have today, right? It's a picture of God sustaining grace. And so that's what Jesus is saying. You can't even, you don't even comprehend that, much less the eternal things in which those things point to. See, the reality was, it was never about the serpents being protected from serpents. It was about God saving you from your sin, from your unbelief, and from the power of God's the power of death over you. God would then would, would be the great serpent crusher. Amen. Amen? This is what this was always pointing to. And so he says, in connection to as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Why? Verse 15, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. So the serpent in the wilderness was to keep their life going, that temporal life, that you wouldn't breathe your last in there. In the, in the, but God says that all pointed to something much more beautiful, much more grand that you'd actually have eternal life. And the one who will be lifted up, not the serpent, but Jesus. Of course, it's a picture of the cross, right? He would be lifted up and he would bear the sin and shame of our lives. And he says, everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Nicodemus, church, we must believe to have eternal life. We have new life, we have new birth. And of course, Nicodemus wouldn't have understood this analogy yet, right? It would be a while, maybe another two or three years, before he would see the full weight of what Jesus was trying to make, the comparison between the Moses and the serpent in the, in the wilderness and, and Jesus, when he would be lifted up on a cross. But it would be a taste so that when Jesus is actually lifted up on that cross and he is bearing the shame of the world, that he would recognize, oh, so if I gaze at the sun, I can live. Just like they would gaze at that bronze serpent and they would live. Do you see what John would have us to see this morning? That we must believe in the crucified and risen son to be saved. I don't want to presume upon anything in this room this morning. I don't know that everyone in here has that kind of belief, that you have believed in the Son. And we'll talk more about it towards the end, but I would just compel you to lean in. Do you believe in the Son in this way? Have you trusted in the real Jesus that the Bible speaks to, not the, the culture's version of Jesus? It's important. Your life depends on it. But if you're a Christ follower, it also reminds us that though we will, and wonderfully having a conversation with some friends in here this morning about the stings of life and ministry, that even though we experience the stings in life and the disappointments and the frustrations of ministry, we can always look at the lifted and high sun in the midst of those things. Friends, would you draw encouragement from that this morning? So that's our first point, believe in the risen, crucified and risen son. Second point, though, is then you can't, in order for that to be the case, you must believe in the marvelous love of God for the world. 
perhaps you hear everything I've just said and you go, well, how, you're still working with Nicodemus. How, how can that be for me? Do you know me? Do you know my background? Am I, am I at all acceptable to God? Why would he give me new birth? Why would he save me from my, God, from my sin? Why would God do all of this? And it is the second point that Jesus and that John ultimately wants to unpack for us. Because God loves you. We don't do enough work on that anymore. God really does love you. In fact, 16 through 21 is the ground for everything that we've read about Jesus' mission of being high and lifted up and saving us from our sins. You can't get the first point unless you really understand the second point, that God loves you. He loves the world. Now let's just think about that for a moment. What does it mean that God loves the world? Because there seems to be lots of debate out there. And so you have the crew that says, well, if God really loves the world, then he'll save everybody. But he doesn't save everybody. Clearly he doesn't. We know this because the Bible expresses the fact that there will be some who will go to experience life apart from God, and there will be those eternal life apart from God, and those who will experience eternal life with God. And so then, to what does it mean that God here would say that he loves the world? How does he love the world? Well, we're over and we're reminded again, as we look at that, it seems, it seems strange. It seems hard for us to get our minds around that because throughout the scriptures, we see how much God is displeased with sin. And we don't like that. I get it. We want to, the gentle grandfatherly God. But the God that were revealed to us in the pages of scripture from bookend to bookend is a God who, who because of his nature, because he is holy, because he is, he is perfect in all his being, cannot love sin. He cannot accept sin. He is a holy God. He's displeased with it. And therefore, there is a promise throughout the scriptures that God will ultimately one day judge finally and fully of those who have not received God's mercy and, and, and from their, for their sins. I mean, even John himself, throughout the Gospels and throughout the epistles that he wrote towards the end, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, says in calls the church, don't love the world. So if, if John's telling us in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, to, to the church, don't love the world, but yet we find that God loves the world here, what, what are we to do with that? Right? That's a hard one, isn't it? It's, it is. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing. Yet, John continues in that very, very same epistle, chapter 4, God is love. So God hates sin. He will judge sin. And he's right to do so. Yet he loves the world. Why? Because he is love. And let's try to put all of that together. How do we resolve all of that wonderful tension? Well, first is God's love for the world, God's love for the world, or love for us for that matter, if we're just being honest and we want to make it more personal, is not a consequence of our loveliness. It, to whatever degree God loves you and I, has nothing to do with your innate or my innate loveliness. Because frankly, the Bible says over and over again, we're not that lovely. No matter how much we like to make of ourselves, how highly we may want to think of ourselves, the Bible just brings us back over and over again to this mirror image and we go, and we do this ourselves. We don't even have to, listen, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't even have to do this ourselves, but we look in the mirror and we go, I don't like the person I see. I don't like the way I behave. I don't like the way people, I treat people. 
So then God's love is not a consequence of our loveliness. He is, by nature then, the fullness of love. It means in any way God loves, it has nothing to do with you or I. It has to do with the fact that by nature that is who God is. Or at least one of his attributes, that he is love. But he's also righteous. He is also justice. He is also holy. So we have to deal with all of those things the Bible describes about God and not just try to put God in this little box of God is love in order to just excuse our sins because that just won't do. So God loves, yet he hates our sin and our rebellion. This dual stance is all through the scriptures. Let me give you a couple of examples. Ezekiel 18, 10 through 13, describes how God doesn't love the wickedness of his people and that he will bring judgment upon his people but then if you read just a few verses later it says he has no desire to turn away from these people he loves so much if it's too much for you to understand believe me it's okay because it's too much for any of us to understand amen clearly god demonstrates this throughout the pages of scripture go to go to Romans 1.18, and God says, tells them that the, the world has fallen away in sin and, 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 and is in desperate rebellion against him in his sin. Let's just pick up in verse 18 there of chapter 1. For God's wrath is revealed of heaven, uh, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So th- that's the issue. We'll talk about it more in a minute. Yet, <laughs> in 6 he tells us, Something wonderful. 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're not loved because you're lovely. You're loved because God just is who he is. And you must receive his love to have new life. You must receive his love in the face of Jesus who took on your sin on himself. Ephesians 2, more popular passage we studied last year, gives us again another, the same tension. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in, dis- in the disobedient, you too were all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. And not to be crude, here comes the biggest but in the Bible. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive in Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace, not by your loveliness. Friend, you and I will run that rat race trying to make ourselves more lovely, but there's nothing more lovely than the special love of God. That's what John's revealing to us before. If you want new birth, you must receive this, excuse me, receive the special love of God. That God would even save us is a miracle in and of itself, but he does because he, 
desires to save his people. And we see it throughout the scriptures that God has spoken a special people. And he says, these people shall be my people. And he goes to people like Abraham and he calls them out of his paganism out of Ur. He goes to Moses and his faithfulness and, and, and fear there in Midian. He calls out Israel out of Egypt, not sparing the firstborn of the Egyptian families, but only the firstborn of Egypt. I mean, firstborn of Israel. He calls out the dreadful sinners all over the scriptures, out of their darkness, into, of their sin, into the light of his grace and mercy. Friends, this is ultimately what will give us new life. It's to believe and trust and lean on that special love that God has for you. I hope you see it. Now, we got more to do, though, right? Because he continues on in verse, um, well, we've, we've said, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, right? He did not send his own son into the world to condemn it, verse 17, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes is not condemned, but anyone who is, does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. And he describes that that condemnation, the light has come in the world and the people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. In other words, in order to experience God's special love, you must embrace the mission of the Son. You must ultimately recognize that you must believe in this work of God on your behalf. And he says, and I just, you just got to look at how, how John is ordering his thoughts here. Those who believe will not perish, but have eternal life. But then he goes on to, ex, to explain that there's more to it. He doesn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And that those who believe are not condemned, but those who don't believe are already condemned already. And that seems kind of odd, doesn't it? Those who believe are not condemned, but... Anyone who does not believe is condemned already? Well, think about it. If the believer, for the believer, this is glad tidings for us. God did everything you have, and you're believing, and you're taking great joy in the work of God for you on your behalf. You, don't, you and I don't know what wonderful, rich truths this has for us and how they can continue to get played out in our life. And I don't know about you, but, but listening to that, that phrase of, for those who believe are not condemned... I find myself to be awfully self-condemning sometimes. Do you? I look at what I see and I don't like it. I look at my shortcomings and I don't like it. Yet for you and I, who are saved, we have no fear of condemnation. God will accept you. He loves you. He's done everything for you to be accepted in his sight because Jesus paid it all. But then there's this alarming reality that those who don't believe are condemned already. That means that even in the light of this great light coming into the world, that's what it says there in verse 19, the people love darkness so much that the light, rather than the light, that they're, because their deeds were so deviantly, so dark, their hearts were so darkened by their sin, and everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it. So please understand something. And this is going to be hard for some of us to, to, to grasp, I think, sometimes. But what he's saying is, is that the darkness that lies within us by nature is a very, very deep darkness. 
It's not just something that like, oh, well, if I could just improve this, if I could just tweak this in my life, if I could just get this thing right in my life, if I could just improve this situation over here, if I could fix this relationship there, then, then I'll be all good and God will love me and he'll be fine and I can fix this. And I, don't, I just need God to kind of do a little cleanup job on me. That's not how the gospel describes your need and my need. It says we're condemned already if we don't believe because ultimately we're in such grave darkness it prevents us from believing the light that's right there in front of our face. If you don't see this morning, it's because the darkness has so captivated your life and God, it takes God's awakening, that new birth we talked about last week, to actually open you up to so you can see. That's why we keep saying over and over again, this idea of new birth and belief are intricately wedded and, the, and there's a mystery there, but you can't disconnect the two. In order for you to have new birth, you must believe, but in order for you to have believe, you must have new birth. And it's, it's a profound mystery. I like uh, Carson, D.A. Carson's quote on this text. He says, as the light of the world, Jesus is the revelation of God and the objectifica- objectification of divine holiness and purity. It means he is the full representation of that. But men prefer to live without such knowledge of God, without such brilliant purity. We are not willing to live by the truth. We value our pride more than our integrity, and we value our prejudice more than our contrite faith. I was talking to Amanda last night about just this desire to get the church back to the simplicity of the gospel. Not just our church, but the church in general. It seems like the church is caught up in so many other things in the world today that we forget that there's, there's this thing called simply Christian. Simply Christian is nothing, more, is, is nothing less and nothing more than what we're reading here today, that you get new birth and Christ offers it to you on the cross because of what he, he bears as your sin and shame there for you. And so, friend, if you find yourself in this morning going, having attention in your heart, that's good. Perhaps the Holy Spirit's working in your life right now. Perhaps the Holy Spirit's trying to expose the darkness there and, and let the light shine through. And I hope before this is over with this morning that will be the case for you so let's just talk about the application here and let's finish up and prepare ourselves for the lord's supper how can these things be true that was the first question yes how can these things be how can i benefit from the new birth how believe in this risen and crucified savior And so believers this morning understand that what Jesus accomplished on that cross is the outflow of his, the outflow of his mission comes from the very heart of God. Amen. He desires none to perish but all to have eternal life. You have no reason this morning not to experience this love. You have no reason this morning to walk out of here not experiencing new birth if you will believe. And so, friends, if you're here this morning, you're an unbeliever, I, just, I need to compel you to think deeply. I need to ask some questions of you because I think this is so important for us. To, I, don't, I don't ever want to, anyone to charge me that you didn't have every opportunity to hear, receive, and respond to the gospel. So here's a couple questions for you this morning. And, and, I'm, and I spoke to our young people last week. I'll speak to you again because I don't know some of us in here have made those professions of faith yet. Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't made that profession of faith as an adult. Who knows? My question to you is very simple. Would you miss out on the marvelous benefits of God's love and mercy because you are blinded by your darkness this morning? Would you miss out on that? Is that the right trade for you today? 
It's not. Don't miss out on it. Is there a pulling in your heart to come to Christ today? Would you make that known to somebody before you walk out of here or before the sun sets this afternoon? Maybe you'll come back in here this evening at a members meeting and go, Hallelujah, Jesus has saved me. This is not a revival meeting, guys. This is just plain doctrinal truth. This is plain biblical truth. It is the law of love. God loves you, and he would have you not walk out of here this morning not knowing and being assured of that love. All you should do is to take and gaze upon the sun. That's all it takes. Will you gaze upon the sun this morning? And for the believer here this morning, please know that there's something here for you as well. Because this is something that I oftentimes forget, and I bet you do too. God has a great affection for you. Dare I say a special affection for you. Though God loves the world in a very, very big and massive way, his love for you, believer, is more magnificent than you can possibly imagine. You, and you can never outrun his love. That he would save you by this special love and give you new birth and call you out all your days to gaze upon the risen sun is a marvelous privilege, and we dare not take advantage of that, take that for granted. Do you live right now, or will you leave this room this morning recognizing that every day you get the right to special rights to wake up and live like this daily as adopted children of God? Amen. If you're struggling here this morning, the first place is repentance for not believing in the marvelous love of God for you. It's not going to be more psychobabble for you this morning. It's not going to be someone else giving you another dimension of your unknown self. That's our world's agenda. No, no. Here is the agenda. The unknown self is known by God. And he loves you. He loves you. God's light through this special love allows you to walk out of your sin this morning with no fear of condemnation, no matter what one person who may wrongly speak to you before you leave. Because guess what? We can be a condemning bunch, can't we? If we're honest with ourselves, and we're fear that someone will look at us differently because I come out of, my, out of, the, out of the darkness into the light, and, and here's the wonderful truth about that. If God doesn't condemn you, who cares who else does? Isn't that wonderful? Walk in faith this morning. Walk in faith of the work of Jesus this morning. Come to the table this morning with that kind of faith that you have been included. And one day, this table that we enjoy together as believers will be an eternal banquet that we will enjoy from forever and forever and forever. Amen? Amen? I think it's time to pray. God, help us this morning as we come to the table and be reminded of this wonderful truth to be to be to be encouraged by it to be broken by it god if there are people in this room who need to know christ this morning would you just in your effectual love blow the doors open of their darkness and let them see the light this morning